In just a minute, I'm going to ask you if you're able to stand to, to stand with me to take communion together, but just hear this thought. Um, some of you know Matt Hall, and um, Matt's part of the worship team, and he plays guitar up here on occasion. And Matt and I have this thing that we do um, over the last couple of years. And when Matt sees me, sometimes he'll walk up to me and he'll say, so how you living? And, and I'll say to him, righteous. And the first time Matt said that to me, um, how you living? And I said, righteous. His response was, whoa. All right, all right, okay. Okay. I can say righteous not because of who I am, but because of whose I am. Right, church? Same is true for you. We take communion this morning not to make us holy, but because we already are. We already are seen as righteous in the eyes of the living God. That's why this is a celebration. So how about if you stand with me right now? And let's hear these words that Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed. He held up this bread and he said, this bread will represent my body which is broken for you. And we also remember that he held up the cup and he said, this blood, this cup is the blood that's in my new covenant with you. It's shed for you. Father, I know that you are pleased with this group of people who have unashamedly said that they not only believe that you died for them, but that you rose again and that you're coming again. And we just proclaim that. Because you said as often as we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we just witnessed, Father, to the person on our left and on our right, and I know that pleases you. God, I, I pray that you will use this proclamation that we've just made to infuse us to want to be closer to you. Thank you for the witness of this church. We pray for your hand on us now as we move forward through understanding your word better and singing to you loudly. Use this, God. We do this in the name of the one who is coming again, the Lord Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen.
So, Romans, hearing no objections, I'm going to go forward with it, <laughs> right? This is a, kind of a, a monumental study we're about to step into. There's a few things I want to catch you up on um, related to it, but go ahead and turn in your Bible to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, and um, you know, it's potential that this could be a fairly long series. You're going to find yourself on vacations and away on certain Sundays. Don't forget, you can catch this stuff live right now. You know, it's streaming on the New Hope Facebook page, but you can also catch the, the recording of it. Um, like on Tuesday, the message is posted, so you can stay up with this. I've had individuals ask me how long the series is going to be. Um, <laughs> I'll give you more information on that in just a minute. Um, if, if you're a person who likes to keep your notes in your bulletin, there's, there's notes this morning, and there's two sets of notes. One is the regular notes that we take throughout the week, and then there's another one that has um, an outline for the book of Romans, and then on the backside is the Romans Road. I'll explain that in just a minute. If you keep notes, we have these little notebooks. They're in the back on that table behind the communion table back there. And this one is unique because it, it has a Romans tab in it, so you can keep it separated from other individual messages. If you already have one of these notebooks and you want one of those paper tabs, just see one of the gals in the office, and they'll be happy to set you up with that so that you have that to keep your notes in, all right? So this week I'm working through um, two words in verse 1, all right? Um, Romans 1, 1 starts out this way, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, set apart, and I'm stuck on the words set apart, and on Tuesday, I get an email from a couple people on staff who said, hey, you know, we'd love to post to the website this week how many weeks this study is going to be. Can, can you give us an idea? And I'm stuck on two words set apart, Right? And so I sent a note back to them right away, in, in like within 30 seconds, and I said, I'm stuck on set apart. It's going to be until Jesus comes, right? Okay. Catch this. We're going to do two verses this morning, verses 1 and 2. And I know in your notes it says we're going to verse 7, but we're not going to make it that far, all right? Uh, or you'd be here till evening. There's 7,000 words in the book of Romans. We're doing 17 this morning. So if you divide 7,000 by 17, we're going to be in this for seven and a half years, right? Okay. <laughs> In other words, we're going to be in this until we're in the new building. Before then, we're, it's just, it's daunting. One of my um, heroes, modern living heroes, is John Piper, um, much older than me and a guy who pastored very, very well, brilliant theologian. And um, this week I'm listening to John's podcast on Romans. And he said this at age 60. Um, he, he was a Bible college professor, finished seminary in his 20s, and, and then started pastoring in his 30s, and he said all his adult life he wanted to teach the book of Romans. And he said at age 60, I have walked to the Mount Everest called Romans time and time again throughout my life and have turned around and walked away, realizing it's so monumental. And I heard that and I thought, oh, great. Because <laughs> I've already told everybody we're doing Romans, right? It is daunting, church, and I, and I say that humbly because it is so magnificent. So I'm gonna ask you to pray for two things right now. We've seen people this weekend surrender their life to Jesus Christ because of the reality of Romans already. People who said, I want to follow Jesus. I'm getting it. I understand it. But I recognize some of you come in here needing refreshment right now. Some of you hit some things in the last couple of weeks that caused you to really need to be recharged. So I'm going to ask you to pray first, and then I'm going to pray with you. Pray first right now. Just throw it up to God. God, would you bring refreshment to my life? And then pray for those who might need to hear this and surrender their life to Christ. Would you do those two things right now? Let's just pray together. Father, I know that you hear the voices of your people and that you are pleased with it. You have told us that in the moment that we utter it, we are ushered into the throne room, 
And we stand before you, people who are surrendered to Jesus, and you hear us. And even when we don't have the words to say, you say that your Holy Spirit interprets our, our, our words with groanings and utterings too deep to even comprehend because the Spirit understands your heart. So, Father, we come before you as people who long to be refreshed by you, to be energized by you, to find new life in you. And we long to discover you. And we long for forgiveness. Father, all these things are so monumental, there's no way man could meet this request. So we ask you to meet it. And we come to you humbly, bringing your word, the book of Romans, before you and asking that you would breathe life into us as you speak through it. And we don't ask for this lightly. We ask for this seriously because we recognize your word is holy. And so we give it back over to you and ask that you would bless it, that you would use it, and that you would change us as a result of it. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. September 386 A.D., a man who has destroyed his life by very wild living, who happens to also be a professor, lives in Milan, Italy, and he sits with one of his friends lamenting over the destruction he's brought upon his life. He's grieving over his behavior. And his friend encourages him, why don't you pick up the book of Romans and begin reading? He picks up the book of Romans, and Aurelius Augustine is absolutely transformed and becomes one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church and one of the most profound authors. 1517 A.D., a Catholic monk is wrestling and wrestling and wrestling over the things that he's been taught in Catholicism versus what he's reading in the book of Romans. And he's been taught that people can buy their way to God and that they can put enough money in the offering plate, they can earn their salvation. And if they do enough works, perhaps they can get to the place where they have justification with God. Yet he's reading in Romans, it's by faith. And Martin Luther makes a radical transformation in his life. 1738, John Wesley is living in London, England, and he travels to Savannah, Georgia, because he intends to lead what he believes will be a great turning to Christ among the American Indians living in the New World. He arrives in Savannah, Georgia, and tries to lead them to Christ and fails miserably. Getting on a ship and returning to London, England, they encounter a storm, and he finds himself consumed with fear. Yet he looks around the ship, and he sees other people who are believers in Christ filled with complete peace, and they're praying that God would deliver them in the midst of the storm. After they finish praying, they turn to him and say, John, did you not have peace with God? He's found his faith completely empty. It doesn't mean anything to him. Jesus has never become real. Two weeks after arriving in London, he goes to a church service, and he listens to someone teach a dissertation on Martin Luther's interpretation of the book of Romans. And his life is changed dramatically. Jesus becomes real to him as he begins to understand justification by faith. A non-believer, Aurelius Augustine, is transformed. A man caught up in a system of works, Martin Luther, reads Romans and his life is transformed forever. His trajectory is changed. John Wesley reads Romans and his life is renewed in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine, church, studying the exact same words that brought life to these individuals? And what's cool about this is we have the exact same Holy Spirit to teach us who taught them. Wow. I mean, that in itself is amazing. What could these individuals possibly have read and understood that changed their life trajectory? Well, a few things that are familiar to you that I'm going to put on the screen without any commentary from me. These are some of the things that they read. Just start with me in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yep, got that. 
Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Logically leads you, lead you into Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. No qualifiers, right? So catch this next one. Romans 10, 13. For who, church? Everyone. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Romans 5, 1 logically flows out of that then. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only logical then that Romans 8.1 would fit right in there. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You've just seen the Romans road. Some of you were led to faith in Jesus Christ because of that. Your belief resulted in salvation. Salvation results in justification. And justification means no condemnation. I don't know where this quote comes from. It's, you're going to see it on the screen. It, 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 it's, it's an unknown source, but it's powerful. And it's true. Romans will captivate the mind of the consummate genius. Yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul. You feel like a humble soul this morning? Like maybe you're not a genius? God's got something to speak to you. You feel like you're a genius? God's going to make you a humble soul. He's going to help you to see what genius really looks like. Equally, I know this about the book of Romans. It will knock you down. And then it will lift you up. And it will strip you naked. And it will clothe you with eternity. That is the power of God's word. That's what these individuals read. It has been called the most important letter ever written, both theologically and in all of world history. So I have a question. How did Paul get to the place where he's able to write the greatest letter in all of the New Testament, let alone perhaps in all of history? Because for years, he's been absorbed in the annihilation of the church. He's the guy who stood against the church, completely working against the will of God. How is it that you hold in your hand this morning a letter written by an individual who stood violently against Jesus? You think you've stood against Jesus in your life? You, you think that perhaps you've done some things that can't be forgiven? You need to understand who Paul is. This guy who murdered people who belongs to the church. You begin, when you read that, to understand the undercurrent of what Romans is all about. Let me take you into a little bit of the history of, of this book, and we're going to go into Romans 1.1 to do that. Here's what the setting is. Paul is writing from Corinth. He's in this region of Corinth, and he's ready to go to Jerusalem for his final time. It's the spring of 58 A.D. He's collected a lot of money. And the money is going to be taken to Jerusalem to distribute to people who are starving to death. They're very, very poor because of the persecutions that are taking place. It's one of his last journeys. And on the end of his third journey, he's going to stand before Caesar in Rome. You might remember that from studying the book of Acts. But at this point, he's never been to Rome. We don't even know how the church in Rome got started. Probably because of Peter's preaching back at Pentecost. And individuals who came to faith in Christ went back to Rome and started a church. But what we have here is a dedicated group of believers who have never met Paul. And they're living in the heart of the Roman Empire. Believers in Rome who have never had the benefit of the teaching of the apostles. Paul's never been there and others have not as well. But Paul is absolutely saturated with the word of God. And he has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. And he's got this commissioning to the Gentiles. So he sits down to write as one completely dedicated to Jesus. And he can admonish other people in a way no one else can. He can say things like this, and you're going to see it in his writings. Be imitators of me. 
follow my example. But at the same time, he's going to say things like, I'm the chief of sinners. See, he, he understands he can admonish people, yet he can do it humbly because he's been where they are. Here's a few of the questions that are going to come up out of the book of Romans. They're in your notes this morning, but just look with me at four samples on the screen because Romans addresses questions like this. Is Jesus really God? Why is there suffering in this world? What are election and predestination? How can a loving God send people to hell? How can a person who has never heard the gospel be held spiritually responsible? Really lightweight questions, right? Okay. Romans hits all that stuff and more. You see samples of them in your notes this morning. Here's the overall theme before we go into Romans 1.1. God's righteousness and how he uses his righteousness to make me righteous so that I can stand before him one day and he can say, not condemned because I put my righteousness on you. Let's go to Romans 1.1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So we have this unusually gifted, remarkable Jew, educated in the house of Gamaliel, the Yale University of its time. For the Hebrews, there's no higher place of learning for him. Yet, he's got this Greek education, and he's got Roman citizenship, and he's incredibly passionate some people would call him zealous, like Paul stopped drinking caffeinated coffee type zealous, right? Like, whoa, this guy's energy off the charts. And he's got incredible leadership ability, and he's highly articulate. Yet he labels himself a bondservant? Why? Well, the word doulos is very significant. I'll explain that in a minute. You read right away as you look at this verse that Paul has labeled himself in three specific ways. He says, first of all, I'm a bondservant, I've been called, and set apart. And there's three things right off the bat that causes you to realize this is not about Paul. This is about something bigger than Paul, someone behind Paul, someone who has called him, someone who has set him apart, someone that has wanted him to become a bondservant. So three times in the first sentence, you see, this is not about Paul. It's about someone greater. Let's understand the word bondservant. The word bondservant is doulos. And if you grew up in church, I think you've probably heard that term before, but just hear it through this lens. The word means a great deal to a Roman living in Rome because when they hear it, they're thinking slave. 60 million slaves living in the Roman Empire. Not because of racial divide but because of economic divide. Some were captured in war and became slaves. Some were born into slavery. Some were just so poor they had to sell themselves into slavery. And business owners and slave owners treated their slaves like pieces of furniture. Yeah, there were some that got favor, but the overwhelming majority of them, they're no different than that piano bench. They served a purpose. They were a piece of furniture they could be disposed of at their owner's whim. That's how the Roman is hearing this word slave that Paul's using. But Paul's a Hebrew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and he also understands God's use of the word slave. And there's Old Testament meaning behind the concept of slave. Let, let me show you an example of that from Exodus 21. It, it, go with me on the screen. God speaking, by the way. If a slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God, and then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. This is where this Hebrew is thinking, taking a mark upon himself like a hole punched through your body. That practice reflects the essence of what Paul's talking about in this term doulos. Somebody who has wholeheartedly given himself to his master. Absolute commitment, he enslaves himself to Jesus. Here's what I know about human nature, church. You don't do that unless you know that you know that you know that you know that what you're giving yourself to is what you want to belong to for the rest of your life. You don't do that on a whim Here's a thought for you. How about if you began each morning, those of you who held up the cup and the bread this morning, you said, I belong to Jesus. How about if you started each morning by saying, 
God, you're the master and I'm the servant. I'm just reporting to you. How do you want to use me today? Maybe tomorrow when you get up, you don't start giving God a laundry list of things that you want, but rather you just say, God, what do you want? You're the master, I'm the servant. How are you going to use me? So we see Paul calling himself a slave of Jesus, and then he says, I'm an apostle. Now, if you've grown up in the church, you're also familiar with that word. It, it means someone who's been sent by authority with a commission. But check this Greek word out on the screen, this word that's in your notes also, apostolos, and really process what it's saying here, an ambassador, someone who's been commissioned, specifically in the New Testament, commissioned by Christ. Cargo ships in the first century sometimes were called apostolic ships because they were sent out from the emperor with a load of cargo leaving from one port and going to another. They had a specific purpose, a specific calling and carrying freight with them. But when it's used of a person, it's used of someone who's been commissioned by the king. Well, there's a requirement in the New Testament. In order to be an apostle of Jesus, two things had to be true of you. You physically had to see the risen Jesus Christ. Did Paul physically see the risen Jesus Christ? Yeah, on the road to Damascus. The other thing that had to be true of you is that you had to receive a commission from Jesus to the office of an apostle. Did he receive a commission from Jesus? Absolutely, on the road to Damascus. So Paul's starting right here with this base of authority. Based on the fact that I'm a called apostle, and he means he's called of God, I've got this authority to speak into your life, and I'm a bond slave of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said to Ananias when he was talking about Paul? Just before Paul had to surrender his life to Jesus Christ, Ananias had, uh, had this conversation with Jesus, and you'll see it on the screen, Acts 9.15. Just hear these words. Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. You see, what you're seeing here, church, is that God initiated the process just like he initiated it in your life. Paul saying in verse 1, I was set apart for the gospel. The word is aphorizo, set apart. This is how it's used. In the Old Testament, when someone had a firstborn child come into their home, they were to be set apart for God's purposes. When people brought sacrifices to God, they were to set apart the first fruits offering. That's the same way that Paul is using this word. I've been set apart. So he goes one step further in Galatians. He's writing to the church in Galatia, and he says this in chapter 1. God set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace. Uh, how crucial is the last part of that verse? Through his grace. Let's go back to what I asked you earlier. How does Paul get to the place where he gets to write the greatest letter in history? Because for years, he's absorbed in the annihilation of the church. Everything he could do, he was consumed with working against the will of God in Jesus, consenting to and participating in murder. He looks more like a member of ISIS than he does of Christ. He's hunting down Christians and killing them. Understand this? This guy stood violently against Jesus. And then you begin to catch the undercurrent of Romans. Question, knowing Paul's past and knowing what he looks like now when he writes the book of Romans, did Paul always look like someone who was set apart for the gospel? No. No way. You got somebody in your life that looks like they've wandered away from Christ, that you thought, man, I thought, it, I thought they belonged, or I thought at least they, they might surrender their life to Jesus at some point. Start looking at them through this lens. Paul looks like a guy who's violently opposed to Jesus. Yet God said he set him apart, even from birth. So does that mean like God lost control of Paul for 30 years? God doesn't lose control of anybody, does he, church? So Paul was permitted to wander away, to live this violent life against Jesus, and he goes off path, goes completely off mission. Here's what you should be catching. Paul is living proof himself of God's grace. That's how he gets to the place where he can write this book. 
He's the guy who vehemently opposed Jesus. So who knew better than Paul just how good the good news really is, right? Yeah, the, he, he understood it. He got it. He lived it. So catch this. Right at the beginning, you're 18 words into 7,000 words. And God says, do you get it? Do you get it, new hope? I'm the God of grace. I can take the guy who's most violently opposed to me, and I can bring him in and use him and forgive him and turn him into an instrument for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Do you get what the gospel is all about? The gospel means good news, right? You church people, you understand that. You've heard the word evangelism probably since you were in diapers. Evangelion. Except understand it this way. The word that he's using, this gospel word, this evangelion, this good news, it was a word exclusive to the emperor. In the first century, if you lived under the boot of Caesar... That's a word that was associated with him and his government. See, Caesar demanded loyalty from his subjects. He demanded that people of Rome see him as divine. And, and when he was issuing proclamations, it was called the good news, the evangelion of the emperor. So he appointed individuals to be his town criers, to stand in the courtyard of the cities and pronounce the king's good news. Uh, think of like a first century version of a presidential press conference. Somebody stands behind a podium. Good news! The emperor has just had a son. Good news! An emperor has acceded to the throne. That, that's the way the word was used. So Paul needs to make sure they understand these people who are living in Rome, that they really understand this heralded message he says, this good news, the most important thing, maybe the most important thing you can get this morning, church, is that this gospel, it is of God. It doesn't belong to Caesar. It doesn't belong to a government. It's not from man. This gospel is of God. That's why he writes it in verse 1. Why? Because it originated with God. It was not invented by man. You and I could never dream up this kind of a rescue, could we? I'm not that smart. Don't look at me like you're smarter, right? We, we just couldn't. It's not human nature. We would never dream up that the God of all the universe would become a man and kill, allow himself to be killed. We just wouldn't do it. So because Paul is writing to this people who are heavily controlled by their government, he needs to be certain that they really understand this good news is of God and it's completely different and it's rooted in God's eternal purpose. And it's promised in Scripture, meaning its origins are ancient. That, that leads us right into verse 2. Now, pat yourself on the back. You just finished verse 1 of Romans chapter 1, right? Really, go like this. It's really great, right? Don't get blisters doing it. Just pat yourself on the back, right? Okay, Romans chapter 1, verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the very foundation of this gospel is the completion of a promise. Does God lie? Okay, let's say it like everybody believes it. Does God lie? No. From a God who cannot lie comes a promise. And he made a promise that was so ancient, people had to be reminded of it. Genesis 3.15. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God and they fall and they bring darkness and sin into this world, and we're the, the, the receivers of it ourselves. We live in a fallen world. But in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall, God shows up, and in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. Yep, there's going to be consequences for your fall, Adam and Eve. Sin has entered into the world. Darkness has come now. But there's a rescuer coming one day. Genesis 3.15, God's words, him speaking. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And he's speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to Satan. Between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head. He is Jesus. He, bruise, is the word crush in the Hebrew language. He will crush you, Lucifer. God in Genesis promised long ago, rooted through his prophets, 
That's what Paul's writing in verse 1. Promised long ago in verse 2. Through his prophets, these individuals specifically chosen by God to write down what he said. Just track this. Scripture originates from God, right? The word of God speaks. God speaks. Prophets hear it, and they wrote down. They accomplish his purposes by writing down what God has revealed. The result, what you hold in your hand today, your Bible on it someplace. If you're holding a Bible, someplace on it should say, Holy Bible, right? Because it's different than everything else that's ever been written. It belongs to God. It's holy, meaning it's been set apart. There's something unique about that book. So Paul says it's from these scriptures that are holy. So check this. This gospel originating with God because it belongs to him. It's not an afterthought. It's not like an action out of desperation. It's not a new strategy because something went wrong. God says it originated with me. Good news, Paul says. It didn't originate with man. Check this, you theologians among us this morning. It did not even originate with Jesus, the man. It originated with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. God the Son became Jesus, the man. It originated with God. Jesus, the man, carried out the plan of God, fulfilled the promise of Scripture. What you see before us is a reminder this originated with God in eternity past. You have just finished verse 1 and verse 2, and I'm going to stop there. But I'm not done yet. Just hear me out on this. These things that you've just heard this morning, they caused this brilliant individual 2,000 years ago to allow God's Spirit to flow through him so that he would write down these words in such a way because he was overwhelmed with the truth of what you have just examined. He could also write things like Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. Remember that? Look with me on the screen. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I I live in first century Rome under the boot of Caesar, and I am not ashamed of this gospel. Why, Paul? For it's the power of God for salvation. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, let this register with you. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. He's not ashamed of the gospel because it's the instrument of God's power and it led to your salvation this morning. I am not ashamed of the gospel for in it is the power of God. Next week, that's what we're gonna talk about. How does God's gospel accomplish this? Just hear this thought. The gospel reveals something. You see it right there in verse 17. What does it reveal? God's righteousness. This, This applies specifically to you this morning. You who lifted up the cup and you lifted up the bread, the the righteousness of God refers to the righteous status that you enjoy. It is the result of God's redemptive action in your life. That's what the gospel reveals. See, this is what messed up Luther. This is what messed up Augustine. This is what messed up Wesley. And I mean in a good way. They came to the realization that it's by faith God put his righteousness on me that has nothing to do with my achievements. It has nothing to do with my religious behavior. What was Martin Luther consumed with? People who wanted to put enough money in the offering plate in order to buy God's favor. And he came to Romans and he realized, it's nothing to do with my behavior. It's everything to do with God's righteousness that's been put on me. God provides a righteousness that has nothing to do with your achievements. It has nothing to do with your religious behavior. Do you get that, church? That's what Romans is about. So this is what it means for you and I this morning. My righteousness, your righteousness stems from the character of the living God. It's not based on your emotions or on your feelings. 
That means your acceptance, your standing before God this morning is not based on how good you feel about yourself this morning. It's based on the truth of who God says you are. So when you feel discouraged, or perhaps even this week or maybe a week ago, you felt defeated, be reminded of who God says you are of who God says, based on your faith in Jesus Christ, I have accepted you. God has accepted you, right, church? So based on your faith in Jesus, God's accepted you. God has justified you. God has forgiven you, meaning God has given you value. God has given you significance because of Jesus Christ. And I'm convinced that God's for me. So that means because God's for me, nothing can separate me from the love of Jesus Christ. What an incredible promise. Hear this last thought. From the dawn of history, people have struggled to be worthy of acceptance by God, and they do this instinctively. All over the planet right now, Muslims are showing up at mosque to bow to Mecca, trying to earn favor from God. Hindus are going to temples to bring offerings before an idol that they worship, a god, small g. Christians are showing up in churches all over the planet today. Some of them in hopes that maybe if I go to church, maybe this time God will accept me. Maybe if I just sing the right way, God's gonna like me. We do that instinctively because we know that we're not acceptable. So we have to do something to be acceptable. To stand before the living God of the universe, there is only one thing you can do if you can do, quote unquote, anything to be acceptable. You start with Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yep, got that. I accept that. I'm going to take you right through what we just went through a minute ago, but I'm going to do it really quickly. And if you think you've got this down, pay close attention because I guarantee you somebody in your world does not know this. If you don't think you need it, write it down for somebody else. It's in your notes this morning. Just follow it through. Begin by recognizing we've all sinned. That means we've all done things to displease God. There is none of us who are innocent, and there's a consequence for sin. And that's what Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the punishment for sin is death. And we're not just talking about physical death, are we, church? We're talking about eternal death. So that logically takes you to Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were still trying to annihilate the church, Paul, While you gave in to killing Stephen, Paul, I died for you. You think you've done something grievous against God that God can't possibly forgive? Catch the undercurrent of Romans of why Paul's writing this. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that takes you like a humble dude to Romans 10.9. Paul had to do this himself. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Because of Jesus' actions, all we have to do is believe. Right, church? It just sounds too easy. This is what really messed with Luther and Augustine and Wesley. What? What? Just believe that Jesus died for me and that God raised him again? God says, yep, because you can't do anything to earn it. If you confess with your mouth, and the scripture goes on, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You just affirm that you believe that. Everyone. Salvation is available to anyone who will trust in Jesus as their Savior. So there's a result of your salvation. And here's the result, Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Do you have peace with God this morning? If you don't, 
Do you want to have it? Because you can. I'm going to show you how in just a minute. You're listening online right now? This applies to you too. It applies to every single one of us. We can be justified. We can have peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 It's a promise. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in what church? Christ Jesus. Wow. No wonder these guys changed their life trajectory. Because of Jesus' death on our behalf, I will never be condemned for my sin. I'm going to have you say the word never with me. Because of Jesus Christ, you will never, you will never be condemned for your sin. Man, if that doesn't make you walk out of here on cloud nine, I don't know what will. Regardless of what you did last week, what you'll do today, and what you might do tomorrow. Because God is greater than all our sin, isn't he, church? God is greater than all of our sin. So Paul is driven to put a capstone on the Romans road that you just saw. The capstone comes from Romans 8. Look at this. I bet you've heard this at funerals a million times, and you've never associated it with the Romans road. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, and that's a lot, isn't it? In all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Is Romans daunting? Romans is powerful. It'll strip you naked and it will clothe you with eternity. It'll knock you down and it'll pick you up. You want that peace with God this morning? I know there's a lot of believers in the auditorium, but I don't want to take for granted that everybody is there yet. I'm going to ask all of us just to bow our heads and I'm going to show you how to pray to receive peace with God. Would you bow right now? We're going to close this service that way. If you're a person who wants to receive peace with God, you want the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, just repeat these words back to him. You do it under the quietness of your breath. Father, I know that I'm a sinner. That's not a newsflash to you. We all know that we're sinners. Father, I know that I'm a sinner, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he is your son and that he died for my sins. Just tell him that. Father, I I want forgiveness of my sins. I want a brand new beginning. Maybe you just even desperately want to cry this out. God, I, I want a fresh start. I need Jesus. I want to make him Lord of my life. Stop living for myself. So Father, from this day forward, I profess Jesus as my Savior and I belong to Him. Just tell Him that. And whatever words you have, use those words, God. Jesus, I want Him to be my Savior. I want forgiveness. If you keep your heads closed down, but if you just prayed that, would you slightly raise your hand? I want to pray for you. I see those hands, and I know that God does too, so let me, let me pray for you right now. God, based on what these individuals have just communicated to you through their prayer, I know that you have received them into your kingdom, and angels are rejoicing in heaven. Father, I pray that you would come around these individuals tomorrow when they feel like their sin is too great, and Satan whispers to them, you're such a screw-up. Father, remind them of who they are in you and that they've been saved by grace. If that's you and you just prayed to receive Jesus, you just say back to Satan, I know, I know I'm messed up, but Jesus saved me. That's your answer. You've been forgiven. Father, for all of us in this auditorium who have lifted the cup this morning and we've celebrated who we are in Jesus, I pray that you would not let us leave this auditorium without recognizing that we have encountered you today. We have encountered the living God and we should not leave here unchanged. 
in whatever way you want to speak into our lives specifically, Father, how you want to use us differently today or tomorrow, show us what that is. Father, I pray for these men, these women, these students who have willingly given their time. I ask that you would bless them for having been here and for studying your word. Now use us for your kingdom. We ask this humbly in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.